Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Following the New Yorker article by Ronan Farrow accusing Les Moonves of uh, unrequested approaches to a variety of women over the past few decades, the board of CBS is meeting today. We'll be talking about uh, the future of its leader. And uh, there's a lot of questions about whether he will be removed, what this does with CBS versus Viacom. Sherry Redstone is the majority owner of CBS. Joining us now to talk about all this is Richard Chambers, president and chief executive officer of the Institute. Institute of Internal Auditors uh, based in, uh, in in Florida. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. What do you think they're going to talk about in this meeting and what do you think they're going to do? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. You know, it's always hard to know uh, exactly how boards are going to respond uh, when these sorts of things happen. I, I know we've been looking at this from the Institute of Internal Auditors over the past few months. And the one thing that strikes us is just how often boards um, sort of overlook this risk. In fact, 85% of the companies that we surveyed said that they just didn't consider sexual misconduct to be a top risk. And so it just all too often seems that when these, uh, when these things happen, uh, everyone sort of looks at each other with a blank stare. Well, uh, Mr. Moonves uh, has said that many times in the past, perhaps uh, he uh, displayed behavior that people might not like, but that he never used his position to affect anyone's career. When, when does an investigation of behavior that's disconnected from an actual job or position, when does that investigation cross the line? I think what what has to happen is uh, you know when uh, once allegations are, are made and and often there as is as a case here there are multiple sides to the story uh, you know at that point it's really too late uh, for uh, boards and uh, for companies to uh, take the reins and in, in terms of making sure that they have the right policies in place the right uh, procedures for investigating uh, allegations of misconduct to me those things uh, have to be play in place well beforehand and and the policies need to include uh, how will investigations of uh, allegations against senior executives be handled at what point do they uh, do they get elevated uh, to the board in fact I would suggest anytime there's an allegation against the CEO uh, that the board or at least the chairman of the board is immediately made aware of it so I think that a lot of it really comes down to sort of acknowledging and recognizing that this is a key risk that companies face and making sure you got all the right controls in place to mitigate that risk. So, Richard, you raise an interesting point, which is, you know, how much should the board be aware of some of these allegations and some of these cultural issues that are emerging across a slew of companies? I mean, we're, we're pinpointing CBS because that's where the news is, but uh, you can pick a lot of other companies that have also been having uh, Me Too movement, uh, movements uh, represented there. Should the board be responsible? Should it be their uh, their responsibility to go out and investigate some of uh, the culture issues to make sure that things are on the up and up? Absolutely. To me, 
uh, you know, it's a shame uh, that American boards are by and large shirking their responsibilities when it comes uh, to oversight of this critical risk. They have an obligation, even even in uh, in statutes in the U.S., they have obligations to maintain oversight of the way risks are managed in a company. And there's no risk, as we're seeing from a lot of the headlines over the last few weeks, there's no risk that's greater than having a high-profile allegation against senior executives of this nature. And so, to me, the board, as part of its oversight of risk management, needs to monitor the culture of the company. And that starts with the tone at the top. How is the company, how is the tone in the company being set by the senior CEO and senior executives? So, the board absolutely has a responsibility, and I would tell you without equivocation that boards are, by and large, not fulfilling that obligation. Okay, so Richard, given that, given the fact that CBS, that their board is now meeting, how able are they to actually handle this situation appropriately since they also are part of the problem, according to you? Well, I, I, and I can't really speak to the CBS board because I don't know what actions they may have been taking along the way. I would say that all boards need to have some kind of a, a, a sense of what is the what is the health of the corporate culture. There are lots of ways they can gather that. One of the ways that we obviously recommend is to turn to the internal auditors of the company and ask the internal auditors to give them some kind of assurance about what uh, controls are in place uh, within the company to handle these kinds of allegations, what kind of uh, uh, codes of conduct are there, and what kind of mechanisms do people have to report allegations. And internal auditors are out there every day in, you know, under, under uncovering uh, issues in the company. They usually have a pretty keen grasp of what the culture of the company is, and boards have the direct access to these folks, so they should be asking them, what's going on? What kind of culture do we have? Because it's a little late once that culture, if it is toxic, once it really kind of uh, tarnishes the company, it's a little bit late for everybody to start um, acknowledging then that there were cultural issues. Richard, how does that happen when the president and the chief executive of a company also happens to be the chairman of the board? That's the case at CBS. Well, that's why it's so, uh, I think that's why it's so powerful that internal auditors report to the audit committee, and the audit committees are chaired not by corporate executives, but by independent board members. And it's those independent board members who chair the board, uh, the audit committee of the board, who have the, the responsibility to turn to internal audit, to look at other sources, um, to get the answers. In fact, our, the survey I mentioned earlier showed that nearly three quarters of corporate boards, almost 75 percent had made no move to bring in any experts or the internal auditors to look at sexual harassment misconduct risks. In the case of CBS, the chairman of that board, the, the audit committee, is Gary uh, Countryman. He's the uh, former chairman of Liberty Mutual. Should they have a regular investigation or process to vet the chairman of the board? or the chief executive for this very issue? Well, I would think there is, uh, there should be, and again, back to my by, back to my earlier point, I think audit committees have an ongoing responsibility uh, to have the kind of dialogue with internal audit. They have executive sessions, usually with the internal auditors, with nobody else from the executive management around. They have an ongoing uh, opportunity uh, to probe these kinds of uh, areas, to ask these kind of questions. There should be a, a, a clear expectation set 
uh, with the uh, legal counsel of the of the company uh, to make sure that any allegations are brought to their attention if they involve uh, the, the CEO or some other senior executive. Uh, to me, this is just a simple matter, not, not simple really, but certainly a matter of risk management. Companies face a litany of risks. You you know, we, we, we talk every day about right. operational risks, strategic risks, uh, technology risks. This is another risk. And uh, to me, smart boards, uh, boards right. that are fully uh, engaged in executing right. their responsibility will have the right risk management in place. We've got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much. Richard Chambers, Chief Executive of the Institute of Internal Auditors on how CBS could handle accusations against Chief Executive and Chairman Les Moonves. Getting ready for back-to-school shopping. Parents are faced, perhaps, with a variety of new items. Everyone needs an earphone holder as well as washi tape. Here to tell us more about the industry is Poonam Goyal, our senior retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Poonam, what kinds of back-to-school shopping can we expect this season? Yeah, you know, I think uh, the back-to-school season this year will be interesting. Estimates are for down 1% to up 2%, depending on who's you look. But I think consumers, uh, what I found very interesting is that apparel, you know, a key category for back-to-school is going to see some momentum this year, which bodes really well for the retailers that I cover, department stores and apparel stores. And within that, I think denim, which has made a strong comeback, um, is going to be fueling that sheer gain. Uh, so people are going to be buying lots of jeans as they head back to school. Is that's that right? what we're seeing. Yes, I mean uh, that's what the surveys show. Are they going to be buying them through Amazon or uh, their local store? So, so that's the question. So I think Amazon will get some of that share. If uh, no matter where I look and how I look, Amazon has been growing its private label business, especially in apparel. We saw that on Prime Day, and I think we'll continue to see that over the course of back to school and even into holidays. But that said, there are some very strong apparel players in denim. When you look at, for example, American Eagle, I think, you know, that's one retailer that stands out and that will continue to do well in the standard jeans um, category, which is forecasted to be up 4.5% for this year. And then Old Navy, when you look at economy jeans um, at the lower price points. Um, Amazon's probably somewhere in between those two, so I think they'll also continue to gain share. Poonam, will people pay more for the same products this year? Will they see inflation at the store? I don't think so, no. While retailers would love to see inflation, um, but I think if you look at a like-to-like item, I don't think you'll see the price move up. That said, if you enhance the material, um, if there's more stretchability to it, if it's you know better quality, um, then the price points there could go up from last year. So when you t- when you start to think about what to expect for the back to school season, how much are you looking at the spending ability of consumers, the economy? I mean, what sort of factors in for you? I mean, the economy definitely matters, right? Because at the end of the day, if the consumer isn't feeling that they are in a healthy position to spend, you're going to see a pullback. I don't see that this year. I didn't see that last year. Um, you know, we have consumer confidence still at near all-time highs. Unemployment rate is low. And the housing market, quite frankly, is still good. So um, we haven't seen consumers start to trade down or anything yet, which helps back-to-school spending. That said, you know, last year, 
Um, if you look back at 3Q, which in retail, it's August, September, October, August was very strong, which, enca- which encompassed most of back to school. So they're up against some very tough comparisons for just back to school. But then when you move forward in the quarter into September, October, it was very, very weak last year, if you recall all the hurricanes and storms that we had and warm temperatures. So we think the opportunity for retail and 3Q back to school will be good, but the real opportunity is going to come in the latter half if temperatures are cooler than they were last year and we don't have as many storms. Poonam, just a little bit more on denim. Does each item, if it has more holes and rips, does it cost more? Sometimes, yes. Um, depends on where you're shopping. You know, um, in premium jeans, yes. In standard jeans, uh, I'd say the rips don't necessarily dictate the price, but the fabrication of the denim does. So if there is more stretchability, if it's softer, yes, it'll cost more. Then why would American Eagle, for example, be offering 30% off if you buy three pairs of jeans? Is it just because their cost is so low that 30% off still means they're making a decent amount of money? Yeah, you know, most of those promotions are typically built in, so I wouldn't consider them loss-leading yet. If you saw 70% off, I would be a little concerned, or even 50% off. So I I think those are built in. And and it's really just to drive the customer into the store and hoping that they also transact into adjacent categories, whether they pick up a top while they're there or something else, that builds the basket. I honestly say, Pim, there have been some advertisements that are sheer parody where you basically have these jeans that are are all holes except for a couple of lines of denim and they cost like $200. There's one post I'm thinking of in particular and it was widely, widely mocked online. Yes, the the look on your face does say it all, Pim. Well, maybe there's a market for (laughs) patches. All right, uh, uh, Poonam, there's got to be more than apparel, right? I mean, are we going to see big spending on technology? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's always a key category, whether it's laptops, you know, iPads, iPhones, whatever it may be. Um, Shoppers need that, back-to-school supplies. Those are definitely top categories. If I look at just a survey that we pulled up, and it was done by Deloitte, you know, total back-to-school spending, they estimate $27.6 billion. The lion's share is apparel, $15 billion. Computer and hardware to your technology um, point and electronic gadgets add up to anywhere near... 3.7 and 2.8, so you're looking at about $6 billion. Yeah. Starting to talk about real money. Poonam Goyal, thank you so much for being with us. Poonam Goyal, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Pim, do you buy clothes online? No, I don't really do a lot of buying. Well, and I you're the one who to. accuses me of I'm not the U.S. Accu- no, economy I, I mean, by I'm not buying use, enough things. Uh, you know, at, at my stage, and there's no, <laughs> the, it's it's not an option. What's I don't know. It's hit or miss for me. I mean, there have been some big wins, but some big losses. $27.5 billion. That's what they're predicting for. That's what Poonam says for uh, spending for back to school. $27.5 billion. A lot of pencils. So is the U.S. housing market heating up or slowing down? Here to talk with us is Logan Motoshami, Senior Loan Officer for AMC Lending. Thank you so much for joining us, Logan. It's really been an interesting couple of months for the U.S. housing market. We got a bunch of uh, negative data or sort of uh, seeming to paint the market with a pessimistic brush. And then today we got this uh, good report that U.S. pending home sales increased for the first time in three months. So can you be just sort of 
take a step back, take stock. Where are we with the U.S. housing market right now? The U.S. housing market looks exactly perfect where it should be today. Um, I think the problem we have here is that uh, we have an, an institution of housing and housing economists that have told the story that we have record-breaking demand, vociferous, strong, and all we need is more inventory. And once more inventory comes, sales will grow. What we saw in existing home sales last week was inventory rose, sales are down. This is the same thing that happened in 2014. Now, we've had twice now in the cycle where we were told we have record-breaking demand, but inventory rises and demand doesn't fall through with it. So it's confusing. And people get nervous because we're later in the cycle, home prices are rising. So people just want to make sure that, you know, they're not, you know, in a situation where prices are going to collapse. And that's not going to be the case in this cycle either. So I think the extreme housing bulls and extreme housing bears are going to be terribly frustrated for the uh, upcoming years because I truly believe they're not correctly reading the data right. And because of that, it creates confusion instead of a instead of a, a housing cycle that looks exactly where it should be. Okay, well, Logan, well, based on your reading of the data, what do you conclude and help Lisa out here? Give us a little picture into the future. Purchase applications are at cycle highs. We've had year-over-year growth every week, basically. Cash buyers are falling as a percentage of sales. So because of that, you're going to need more mortgage demand to get growth from these levels. This is the same thing kind of what happened last year as well. We were kind of a flat to negative sales trends. But purchase applications are still only at 1998 levels. So we're not, we're not bearing some very strong economic cycle where builders have to build out more homes. So the inventory channels from the builders are actually looks pretty, pretty in line because new home sales are still growing. They're actually better than, than, than I anticipated. So it's just a very slow and steady housing cycle. So there's, there's not this, uh, there shouldn't be this very uh, extreme bearish theme with the data that came in last week or an extreme bullish theme for all the data that has been out here for years with housing. It's just a very slow and steady housing cycle, but it confuses people when they see inventory increase year over year and demand go down. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's the miscommunication with the housing community to the public, because the public was always told, if we get more inventory, sales will take off, right. and twice now in the cycle, it has not happened. Logan, you're uniquely positioned to give us insight in how much the increase in mortgage rates has affected uh, demand for home loans. What has it been like? Well, even today, purchase applications are up year over year. So uh, we can we can assume that higher mortgage rates with higher home prices might impact the rate of growth of housing. But this isn't like 2014. 2014 was very evident. Mortgage rates rose in late 2013. Purchase applications were down 20% year over year for the majority of the year. We don't see that this year. So today, even now, higher mortgage rates have not impacted sales in the sense that uh, we're creating a negative trend, but it's impacting, I would say, the rate of growth out here. But also, it's harder to move up when you're, when interest rates are higher. You know, I, yeah. I know there's a lockdown rate theory, but higher home prices make it harder for the move-up buyer to buy that expensive house. And we see this in the housing tenure data, that housing tenure is at all-time highs right now. And this is a situation why builders aren't building more homes. They know there's a massive amount of supply that is out there that is cheaper, smaller, 
and has a geographical advantage over them. So one thing that I'm trying to understand, perhaps some of the confusion is stemming from a bifurcation in the U.S. market where certain big cities that enjoyed uh, massive booms in their housing markets are seeing uh, sort of market slowdowns. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, of San Francisco, not market, but you're starting to see a plateauing and and a dipping in prices and certainly uh, in New York. How much is that part of the narrative? what I could see in SoCal, and I, I even took a bunch of photos of, of, of price reduction homes. What I saw in June and July was aggressive selling prices from real estate agents, and these homes are on for 30 days or more, and it's late July, and if you need to sell the house before the, you know, the, the, school, the, the school time it comes in, you saw aggressive price cuts. You know, I, I saw price cuts of 4, 5, 6, 7 percent even to sell the house. Okay, so there is limits to what you could put onto the marketplace, and that's what I'm seeing this summer, is that you saw aggressive selling prices, thinking that it would just be soaked up, because inventory is, monthly supply is at near cycle lows, and it didn't happen, and it, you know the sales are delayed out because the price cuts are, are coming in, and most likely that'll, the buyers will pick it up then. But that is what, I, that was what I'm assuming is, gonna, is what we're seeing in other places, that there's limits to how much price increases you could get out of the house. Logan, uh, just quickly, and I just want to mention, you've got a great website, Logan, uh, your Financial Truth website, where you put out your uh, 2018 economic and housing predictions. Just 20 seconds. Would you change anything that you've described earlier this year? Absolutely not. It looks perfect because I talked about existing home sales will be flat to negative, but inventory will increase and people shouldn't panic about that. That was my exact line I used uh, in there. This is uh, this year looked exactly correct. And new home sales are actually still outperforming my sales estimates. I was only looking for two to five percent growth. We're a little bit higher than that. Median sales price is falling. This right. is actually a good thing. That means lower home prices are in, coming in the market. We got to leave it there, but thanks very much for being with us, Logan Matsushami. He is the senior loan officer for AMC Lending, giving us his perspective on housing data, mortgage applications, and the housing market. Joining us now in studio, Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Carl, got to ask you about Kansas City and Esther George, head of the Kansas City Fed. You're shaking your head. You're giving me the smile. This means Esther George is going to vote, isn't she? Yes, she will be uh, voting in the uh, absence of uh, San Francisco Fed having a uh, replacement for John Williams, who moved, uh, who to... was the president at the San Fran Fed, who is now the president at the New York Fed. And what does so this a little mean? bit of uh, of musical chairs? Do you think that, I mean, Esther George uh, is known as pretty hawkish. More than pretty hawkish, uh, she is uh, one of the most uh, resolute hawks on the uh, committee. So. Uh, you know, one vote uh, can't uh, can't sway the committee. So uh, you know, I, I don't think this materially will change the discussion uh, for uh, economics uh, and uh, policy setting at the uh, Fed. But nonetheless, uh, it will be a hawkish voice who counts as a vote, not just uh, not just an opposition. Carl, uh, there is an enigma wrapped in a mystery 
wrapped in a paradox in the economic models right now. Uh, we have the U.S. administration, the president and his uh, his staff, talking about sustained 3% growth in the U.S., possibly more. You hear a lot of bullish talk. You also hear a lot of bullish talk from uh, investors who are looking at the fundamentals, seeing incredible earnings. And then there is the pessimism. And the pessimism is so pervasive. Where do you fall on this? What's the right narrative right now? I think we got too uh, wrapped up in the uh, notion of new normal economic growth coming out of the uh, Great Recession uh, because the economy was so sluggish for so many years. Uh, a lot of folks started to say, "Well, this you know this is where we're stuck uh, going forward." Uh, so I, I think that was excessive pessimism. Uh, that being said, I don't think that uh, you know sustained growth at uh, three or four uh, percent is really a viable option for the U.S. economy uh, either. You can hit those types of growth figures for a short period of time. Uh, sometimes if uh, all, you know, have the perfect storm of uh, economic contributions like we saw in Q2, uh, you get it. Uh, also, uh, if you uh, cut taxes enough and basically uh, embark on deficit spending, uh, you can also get uh, sustained pickup, uh, but only for uh, a short to medium uh, time period. And ultimately, you have to pay the piper. So I think what we're seeing now is the economy is uh, improving given where we are in the cycle. It's not just a consumer story anymore. Businesses are uh, spending, but sustained growth in the 3 to 4% territory, uh, just not in the cards. So we're going to get a rate hike in September. Any other rate hikes from the Fed this year? That's going to depend on uh, economic performance in the back half of the year. Now, what we saw, you know, 4.1% growth in uh, Q2. Uh, my team is forecasting growth to moderate at about 2.8% uh, in the back half of the year. So if you're growing at 2.8%, your unemployment rate is 4% or just a little lower, uh, inflation's running at 2%, that seems like it would augur for the Fed to continue on this gradual path of normalization. But I suspect financial conditions rather than economic performance uh, are going to be the determinant of that potential fourth rate hike, which will come up in December. Uh, and so as we look at financial conditions, we have a Fed balance sheet that's tightening. Uh, the dollar has been appreciating significantly. The yield curve is very flat. Uh, I suspect these financial considerations will actually lead the Fed to pause uh, at that December meeting rather than uh, purely looking at uh, the economic data. If you look at the economic data, it's a green light. Uh, if you look at the financial data, uh, it's flashing yellow. Why would they not look at the economic data? Well, they're looking at both. No, I know, but why would they? Why would they? They, they won't look at the that? economic data in isolation, right? They're very concerned about the potential implications of a flat yield curve. Okay, but wait, wait, and wait, if they wait, keep wait, hiking, wait, they'll wait, invert it. Well, and wait, forget yield sure. curve for just a second. We got the report from Caterpillar today, right? Talked to Karen Ubelhart, Bloomberg Intelligence said this is great. I mean, things are really good. And they're raising prices. And those price increases are probably going to stick. You notice that in the transportation industry, prices are increasing. Can't find truckers. Is there an opportunity for the Federal Reserve to get ahead of the curve here and actually go ahead with these rate increases? The Fed doesn't want to get ahead of the curve. They want to move with the data. Uh, but you need to look at forward-looking data. So it's not what the economy is doing at the moment, 4% growth. It's what you're expecting the economy to do over the next couple of quarters uh, that really matters. And I suspect uh, we're going to get a clue 
a little bit later this week. And while the main focal points are the Fed meeting and the jobs report on Wednesday and Friday, respectively, what could be more important uh, is the manufacturing ISM, which is out on Wednesday. Mm. Uh, and within that, we have new export orders. We've had a dramatic appreciation of the yeah. dollar over the last uh, couple of months, and that could be the beginning of a downdraft or a period of weakness in the back half. Kara Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, always well done, actually, Bloomberg Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 